I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. From possible de minimis level changes to complications involving rules of origin in textiles and to breaking the internet, the Trade Guys discuss all that and more in this week's episode. Hi, Bill. Hi, Scott. I hope you're both doing well this week. There has been quite a bit of news uh, about de minimis. I think, Bill, you wrote about it in your column this week. What is being proposed on the Hill and what is de minimis anyway? I did write a column about it, which has been out about 12 hours and has already been superseded by events, but that's the way these things go. De minimis is the term that's used for the value of an of an incoming shipment below which normal customs procedures and duties are waived and above which they're not. And the idea was for small packages coming in of low value, it's just not worth the time or effort of the customs service to worry about them all and to collect duty on them. And so let's have a, a level. And if you're, if you're, what you were shipping in was of low value, uh, the duty wouldn't be very big anyway, was a theory. And so you just, it's like an exe- exemption. And for a very long time, the duty was $200. The, li- the de minimis limit was $200. And then in 2015 trade legislation, Congress increased it to $800, which made it, I think, probably bigger than almost everywhere else. In China, it's $7. So there's a rather big difference uh, between us and, and China on this and, and a lot of other countries. The theory at the time was, particularly with the growth of trade and particularly the growth of delivery, not retail shopping trade, but but direct uh, trade via Amazon or whoever. It was just going to be convenient for everybody to uh, let all uh, an increasing number of these uh, low value packages into the country. Uh, that was controversial at the time, and it still is. What has happened since they did it was there's been an explosion of sort of online trade and online shipments, uh, particularly in the last year or two, COVID driven. You know, people stopped going to stores and they started ordering direct, which meant you would get packages direct and often you might get them from overseas or they would come in, you know, individually to whoever. So with this explosion, suddenly, you know, it's made a big difference. It's probably made a difference in, in duty collection, but it has also apparently aroused uh, some concerns in the trade community that stuff is coming in through essentially circumvention of the rules. That is, rather than making one large shipment and paying duty, importers have discovered they can make a whole bunch of less than $800 shipments uh, and not pay any duty. Now, when the limit was 200 that would be an awful lot of packages. When the limit is 800 it's not quite as many packages, and it becomes more economically feasible, apparently, uh, for companies to do that. So you get a lot of $795 packages entering the country. Just to digress a second, this is not an unusual development. The basic lesson, which I hope people who listened to, the, uh, listened to us in the past have learned, is that you, know, you mess with the market, uh, unexpected things happen, and there's collateral damage. Uh, the most famous case just like this, uh, which we talked about, was the, uh, the Harley-Davidson 201 safeguards case in, in the 80s, where tariffs were put on imported motorcycles with an engine displacement of 800 cc's. 
So what you had happened was the, the motorcycle companies redesigned their motorcycles to be 790 cc's and thereby avoiding the duties. So there's always another move in this business and you've seen an explosion of packages, I think partly because of COVID, but also partly because it's a way of getting around duties. So there's a call to change that and Congressman Blumenauer, whose views are important because he's the chair of the Trade Subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee, introduced a bill yesterday to uh, remove, not just take it back down, but to remove the exemption for, uh, in a very, in a targeted way, to imports from non-market economies that are simultaneously on USTR's intellectual property watch list. So that means countries that are suspected of IP violations that are also non-market economies. Well, if you parse through that, that means one big country and three small ones. The big one is China. The three smaller ones are Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Vietnam, which is not so small, but which is smaller than China. And he would remove the exemption for those countries. And at that point, the argument breaks out because uh, the people in this country who would prefer to have those imports from those countries paying duty, particularly from China, are all for it. People that are importers think this is a terrible idea that's going to retard trade, make products more expensive, etc., etc. More to say, but I'll yield to Scott. Well, it's an interesting issue that, that is, it's not surprising it keeps coming up. The starting point, I think, ought to be asking the uh, DHS people whether this has assisted them in risk management. It's one of the one of the arguments for raising de minimis from 200 to 800 uh, back uh, in the customs bill in 2015 was that it would better focus re scarce resources on risk management for sort of the big problems they were having in import inspection and the entire regime of, uh, of, of protection that's in place. That's one group we haven't heard from here about whether it, it actually had a benefit of, of simplifying and helping risk management. And given that we import you know, over $2 trillion worth of stuff a year, there's a lot to inspect and there's a, there's a, a fair amount of risk that's une uneven across those imports. Some of them are, are very, you, you know a lot about them and they're routine. Auto parts crossing the, the uh, US-Canada border at, uh, at Windsor. But risk management was an important reason to do this. Second, one group that is very difficult to consult, but to whom uh, the de minimis uh, level is very important, are e-commerce participants who have foreign customers. And it's not what you think it is, because a U.S. e-commerce firm is probably exporting uh, materials or, or goods to a foreign customer. Where de minimis is important is on returns. Now, returns are normal part of any retail operation. And you, you know it if you've shopped, you've shopped anywhere. When you have an item that you want to return, uh, the returns process is very well documented. They tell you what you have to do, whether it's Costco or, or uh, your local grocery store or whatever it might be. Everybody has a returns policy. Uh, it turns out if you, if you have sold a product to a, for, a customer who's located in a foreign country, returns can be really complicated for that customer to get a, they say the sweater doesn't fit or whatever it might be, and they want to return it and exchange it. And without de minimis, returns are astonishingly complicated. They increase costs on both ends, and they really harm the business of that e-commerce firm 
who wants to sell to the foreign customers. The foreign customers want to buy from the e-commerce firm, but just it's the fees and, and, uh, and difficulty and the hassle gets in the way. That's not an organized lobby in Washington. Foreign customers who buy stuff from U.S. e-commerce re retailers, they don't have a trade association that I'm aware of. And so often they're not consulted in this. So for me, I, I would just, I, I want to know more about whether this is helping with risk management or not. And then also I'd like to know what are the downsides of raising it, or of changing it. And one of the questions on risk management is if you just want to exclude China from the provision, does that increase or decrease the complexity uh, of uh, CBP at the border? I, I don't know the answers to any of these. And uh, one final point is if, as they do the drafting where you, you are someone who's a non-market economy and on the priority watch list of the special 301 report, which is the intellectual property list they're drawing from, would uh, recommend careful drafting. And that, that gets to the three or four economies Bill mentioned. If it's or, it'll be embarrassing because Canada was on the, uh, the priority watch list, special 301 priority watch list for I think four years, 2009 to maybe 2012. Yeah, but this is limited to non-market economies that are on the list, so. Yeah, as long as they drafted and not or. If I could comment on a couple of those really good points. One, I believe CBP, Customs and Border Patrol, has in the past uh, recommended uh, going, uh, reducing the de minimis level back down to $200 because they have concerns about uh, the current system. I don't think they've commented yet on Blumenauer's bill. I, they haven't had a chance. It's not been introduced more than one day. But I, one of their concerns is one that I neglected to mention, which is sort of contraband and, and security. If you're going to have an increased uh, enhanced diminutiveness level, then what you've got, it's not only duties that aren't being paid, but it's normal custom scrutiny that is being bypassed as well. So you've got uh, the potential, not I guess the reality, of you know illegal drugs and other contraband coming in in these packages that are sort of air freighted in, listed with less than eight hundred dollars of value, and the customs service is I think is, is is worried about that. The other comment which Scott didn't get into is you know there, there's kind of a dilemma here. It, it's not hard to acknowledge that there's problems with the current system in terms of. Uh, you know the kind of scrutiny I just described, and and uh, uh, the burden on the on CBP. But there's also issues of you know uh, how you fix it makes a difference. I mean, the most obvious fix is just go back to two hundred dollars. That simply restores all the problems you had with two hundred dollars, a level that was widely regarded as too low and not having kept up with inflation, uh, and would impose a, an excessive burden on CBP. On the other hand, if you take the targeted approach that Blumenauer's taken, I think then you run into WTO issues because essentially what you're doing is you're treating, in this case, four countries different from uh, different from all the rest. And I, I'm not sure how we will justify that if we're if we were to be sued on on that basis. That's an argument in a way for what Scott said is this needs more investigation. It needs a hearing. Uh, it needs a chance to air all the uh, the debates. And I can tell you from uh, 2015 experience that Scott's exactly right. There will be a vigorous debate. There's people who feel very strongly about this on both sides. This is not something that's going to pass by unanimous consent uh, in either body. Well, let's turn to another area where there is a robust exchange ongoing. That regards Vice President Harris's focus on Central America 
as it pertains to textiles, another very complicated area of trade. So there's an ongoing debate about whether or not to change rules of origin to allow for better economic integration of the North American textile market. Could you explain what's going on and what the parties are disagreeing about? So a couple, a couple of points to start with. First is one of the areas in the U.S. goods tariff list, which still has relatively high tariffs, are what have been known as light industrial goods. So things that require a fair amount of labor to assemble the product or develop them. It's not exclusively apparel, but it does include apparel. So if you look at our tariff schedule, for things that we don't make here at all, tariffs tend to be very low. For high, high technology products or, or, or very sophisticated industrial goods, machine tools, aircraft, those kinds of things, tariffs tend to be fairly low. And that was because the companies who are active in those businesses, the sort of the industrial interests had had in mind the entire world as a market, and they were prepared to lower U.S. tariffs in order to get lower tariffs abroad. So at the either end of the schedule, there are zero tariffs for imports of those goods for different reasons. But now in the middle are the so-called light industrials, and this is small hand tools as well as a number of uh, products that that require a reasonable amount of, of labor as a component of, of their creation. Uh, and the, the biggest by far is textiles and apparel. So those are still where there's a relatively high, say nine, nine to 10% uh, ad valorem tariff on uh, the U.S. good. This is what our trading partners would call a tariff peak. Now, that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the baseline, that's the MFN tariff. For preferential tariff treatment, like our free trade agreements, there are a different set of rules in order to get to that preferential tariff. We talked about auto rules in the USMCA last week. Turns out that textile and apparel rules in the Central America Free Trade Agreement were very carefully negotiated. And the way you get uh, preferential treatment or duty-free treatment in that arrangement is to go with what's called a yarn forward rule, which is so if you think of a textile, it starts as, it starts as cotton fiber. The fiber is made into a thread or yarn. That thread is woven into a material, uh, the, the textile itself, and then cut and processed into garments. So it's a product, a, cons a consumer product, say a, a pair of jeans or a shirt, that is that qualifies for the preference, has everything from the yarn to completion done within those within that eight country area. So the, the seven countries, I'm sorry. The, the five Central American Republics, Dominican Republic, and the United States. Since fabric production, or, or the textile production itself, is relatively mechanized, that tends to be in the U.S., assembly, the cut and sew part of the construction of the garment, tends to be higher labor component. So it tends, the needle tends to be held and the, the garments are put together in places where there's lower labor costs, in this case, Central America. So the idea was to build an integrated manufacturing process that included both U.S. large-scale textile producers and Central American assemblers, cut and sew groups. And that supply chain on a whole would, have, would be competitive versus non-preferential trade from elsewhere in the world. That was the idea, and it worked out to a certain extent. There is a a reasonable amount of apparel assembly done in Central America these days. Not as much as I think some would like, and, and there's uh, the clearly a need for more 
more jobs in, in that Central America region. But the fight's over whether you change the rules. And there is a way, there, there's this, what's called a short supply petition, which is also in almost all our uh, preferential agreements, is that if a component or material or whatever it might be is not available within the production network, you can petition the government through this short supply process to get an exemption, still qualify for the preferential rule, but use, use a, a material, say an, an emblem or something something that's added to the garment, part of the garment, but not made in the region. In practice, short supply petitions are awfully difficult to get, but that's the, that is in general what they're discussing. I started out by saying this was 20 years ago it was negotiated, and, and which it was, but the world's changed a lot in those 20 years. And it may make sense to revisit this, but it's, a, it's an old uh, argument in terms of how the rules should be managed and how restrictive the rules should be. Not all that different than autos in uh, North America, but different products, different countries. What's going on right now is that the vice president, who's been tasked by the president to figure out how to promote economic development in Central America as really as a means of of reducing immigration to the United States is going down, uh, I guess, next week for the inauguration of the new president of Honduras. And they're looking at this issue, and that has opened the door for basically the people that import apparel from lots of places, not just Central America, to argue that the yarn forward rule is unduly restrictive and that if it were modified or eliminated, there would be a lot more investment in, uh, in, in Central America uh, because companies would move their operations out of China or out of Asia and do what we've talked about on this, on this program before, which is shorten their supply chains uh, and, and basically regionalize them to the advantage of, of Central American economies. The other side has pointed out that, yeah, what will happen, though, that what will happen if you do that is you're going to get more cut and sew operations in Central America. And the fabric or the yarn is still going to be coming from somewhere else. But that somewhere else isn't going to be the United States or the CAFTA countries. That somewhere else is going to be Asia or Europe or Africa, for that matter. Because what the yarn forward rule, the yarn forward rule was, was formulated to give an advantage to the large-scale American textile manufacturers that Scott referred to. And it has saved a lot of jobs in the United States in doing so, they make a lot of fabric and they ship it down to Central America or the DR for, uh, for making it into, into garments. If you get rid of the rule, what will happen, I think, is that companies will probably set up more cut and sew operations there, but they'll do it with uh, yarn and fabric that's imported from non-CAFTA and non-U.S. Uh, locations. So you might create more jobs in uh, Central America. There'll be cut and sew jobs. This is not moving them up the value-added chain. It's just more of the same. But it will come at the expense of jobs in the United States as there will be less fabric exported from here. That issue is joined. The textile lobby in the United States has been very influential for a very long time. They are going to oppose any changes in the yarn forward rule. So I'm not sure how far anything's going to get. I should be clear, the, the administration has not proposed to change anything in the yarn forward rule. The importers have, have proposed the changes and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, this is one where I, I wish him luck, uh, wish the vice president luck. But having worked on uh, the DR-CAFTA agreement back uh, a couple of decades ago, 
Many of us who worked on it thought this would be good for the region and that it would help raise living standards in the region in important ways and bring about both better living conditions and a middle class that had some some basic commitment to what was going on in country and secondarily take pressure off migration. I don't know if I'd look back over the last 20 years and say, did it work? And I'm not sure what I'd answer today. You know, it's, it's really, really, they're an unusual group. Those six countries are, are six of only 20 economies in the world that have preferential access to the U.S. market. And in some places, you can see that it's working. Costa Rica is probably the best example of that. But uh, they were probably going to succeed anyway. And uh, if you look at Nicaragua, which, is, which is, has free trade with the United States, their economy is not much better than Cuba, which, which has, labors under embargoes that still exist. So I'm not sure what to make of it. Trade can help. Uh, it's not, it's not going to be the kind of solution that we hoped it would have been 20 years ago. It'll be hard fought. The people that argue that there will be an adverse jobs effect in the United States are probably right in that respect. But you know, that's the trade-off. The, 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 the argument of the importers is you know, that if one of your goals here is to shorten supply chains, and if one of your goals is to get U.S. companies out of China— and to decouple, if, if uh, I could use that word, this will help do that, you know, and they're right about that. But there's a cost. It's not a clear-cut issue. Well, from de minimis and rules of origin and textiles, let's get maybe out of the weeds a little and excuse this terrible pun, but into the seaweeds. <laughs> there was a, a large volcanic eruption this week in Tonga, which I think broke the internet with the, the big boom everyone saw in the Twitterverse. One of the implications of that huge explosion is that it severed an undersea fiber optic cable, and it has left Tonga essentially unable to communicate with others, including ships that are bringing fresh water, other supplies. They're not able to communicate with governments in the region. So do we sometimes take the digital economy for granted, and do we fail to see its fragility and how crucial some of the infrastructure components are to the way that we conduct global digital trade? Well, I, I think the answer is I think the answer is yes, uh, and uh, it's one of those things that I was amused at first when I read uh, the stories about the internet being broken, because back a, a ten years or so ago, there was this very painful debate on what was called net neutrality, which really had to do with some big revenue implications, but a fight between uh, internet service providers and content providers. And one of the arguments during net neutrality, and I don't even remember which side made it, but they, they, they basically said, if you don't do this, you're going to break the internet or something like that. And the idea of breaking the internet seemed hilarious to me. But it turns out you can physically sever some of the core components of it and have that effect, mostly because, and I'm, I'm not sure, I didn't know this until I started reading about it this week, because uh, I, I thought when I made a cell phone call to my friends in Singapore, that all was satellite communication. It turns out the only part that's not, that is not handled by wires is from my cell phone to the nearest tower and from my friends in Singapore's cell phone to, to the nearest tower there. That almost everything else, those signals go through via fiber optic cables, uh, either underground or underwater. And the undersea cable network is quite, uh, is quite amazing to, to take a look at. My favorite website for this point is called submarinecablemap.com. That's submarinecablemap, no spaces, dot com. 
it's a hilarious picture of, of how big this network is underground. But yeah, it had a, had a very profound effect on, uh, on the South Pacific and literally cut them off entirely from communications. Uh, now, the rescue efforts began almost immediately. As I understand it, the Australian and New Zealand Air Forces both immediately uh, got aircraft in the area with supplies and equipment so that they, they could be communication with the outside world and uh, a prior to prioritization of assistance for Tongo and other South Pacific islands who had been cut off. But it's, there's, there are some, first of all, there are natural disasters which are quite dramatic and, and have magnitudes that we don't, don't see on even a, an annual basis. Something like this, this magma eruption, undersea eruption that caused the tsunami that took out all the equipment. But yeah, the uh, uh, global commerce and global communications depends on a lot of, part, a lot of pieces that we don't think about, but you've got to, if you don't have all the pieces, they're a problem. So supply chain difficulties can come from almost anywhere. It's also become complicated, I gather, because of COVID. Tonga had been a good news story in COVID, uh, for COVID. I mean, they're very isolated. They're in, way, way out in the Pacific. They've had apparently one case, and that was it. And they're very concerned that uh, relief efforts are going to bring people into Tonga uh, who are infected. And then you've got a, a country that's not only had a volcano disaster, but could have a public health disaster on top of it. So they're trying to develop ways in which uh, relief, uh, particularly water, because water is uh, a lot of the water has been contaminated by the open water. Uh, fresh water has been contaminated by volcanic ash. They're trying to figure out ways to deliver that uh, don't re involve contact with people from outside of Tonga. And it's complicated by the fact that, uh, you know, some of the airports are covered with volcanic ash and, and airplanes can't land either. So you've got ships uh, heading that way from Australia and New Zealand, which will take a while, not a big while. But then they still got the problem of how do we, I hope they have helicopters, how do we offload relief supplies and then onload them into the country without personal contact? You think we're a, such a highly mechanized and technological society, and then something like this happens, and you go back to elements very quickly. You know. Yes, it's one of those things. It, it makes me want to, you know, reflect on the miracle that happens every time I walk into my office and flip the light switch on, and the lights actually come on. There is an immense amount of engineering and uh, and effort and uh, infrastructure that's behind that simple act of flipping a switch. That's kind of how I uh, felt checking my email inbox on Tuesday after a long weekend. You think, wow, <laughs> there's a lot of connectivity involved here. I believe that DEPA, the Digital, uh, Digital Economic Partnership Agreement, actually contains language on infrastructure commitments among the parties to maintain the undersea cables. Is this something that the United States should start including in digital trade agreements? Well, it seems logical. I'd want to talk to the people who do it and uh, find out if it's if those agreements are important to them. Uh, but certainly, it's an important piece of the puzzle. Bill made the point that uh, that ships from Australia and New Zealand are on the way to uh, to Tonga and other islands as part of the effort. One of the ships that left Papua New Guinea is a cable laying ship, so they're going to try to restore that undersea cable as quickly as they can. So. Well, excellent. We'll have to stay tuned for more developments, rules of origin or internet related. Thank you so much. Thanks. See you next week.
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.